A couple weeks ago, there was this uh, intense moment in the sports world. Tom Brady was coming back to play against the Patriots. His Patriots? Maybe they're not his anymore. The only team he hadn't defeated in his long career as a star quarterback in the NFL was the Patriots, because that was his team. So is he going to take it easy on the Patriots? He has lots of friends there, after all. Lots of staff and, and players are there who enjoyed the success that he brought to their team. I mean, think about how many Super Bowl rings, how much bling did he bring to the dozen or so former teammates, at least, who would be facing him on that field? Maybe 50, be an estimate, rings sitting on mantles and in display cases that, that their work together with Tom Brady, but it, we kind of know Tom Brady was able to, to pull it off. Uh, and, and so the tension was felt all across America in, in the... Is the highest rated Sunday night football game in a decade. I mean, people were watching. So was he a traitor to the Patriots? <laughs> yeah, 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 he was. Uh, would, would he take it easy on them? Uh, no, no. And of course, Brady wasn't alone. He, he, had, uh, he had some Buccaneers show up with him in, in this showdown, right, of, of, of his, uh, of his former, former team. And he defeated the Patriots. And I'm not sure anybody was really in doubt about the outcome of that. But in the end, they, they just couldn't compete with Tom Brady and his plan of attack and his team. Love him or not, he's, he's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Well, I want, to, I want you to think about Saul of Tarsus now. He was feeling the tension as well when he came alive to his calling on the road to Damascus. But in, in Damascus, he's, he's recovering this, this sense of calling. He was a man on fire. And the disciples in the new movement feared him. They didn't trust him because he had been on assignment to capture the leaders of this infant movement of Jesus people and haul them off to jail. So nobody trusted him. But he was a new man now. He, he was on a, a new team. But So was he a traitor to the Jewish people then? Well, no, if, if allowed, he would actually be their hero. Some, of course, blessed his name because he brought good news. Hero, Paul. He had been blind to the calling of Jesus, and now he knows without a doubt that Jesus is everything he and his devout Jewish brothers and sisters had been longing for. So, he comes into Damascus, and the disciples have feared him because he's been hunting them. And the devout Jews who haven't accepted Jesus hated him for betraying them and letting down the side. He, he was their superstar, and now is he a traitor to them? For one thing, he's beating them down in debate. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 9, 19 through 30. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, Jesus is the Son of God in the synagogue. Do you know what a synagogue is? That's, a, that's the gathering, the central place in all these different towns for Jewish people to worship and learn and, and fellowship, to connect. And now he's coming in and saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And that's a title that had some very limited usage, let's say. 
Uh, the Roman Caesars like to refer to themselves that way, along with uh, the titles Lord and Savior. Um, the title Son of God for a Jewish audience in the synagogue would, would have been uh, reserved for, for the entire nation. You know, when Yahweh says something like, Out of Egypt I have called my son. You're referring to the Exodus and his, his son being the, the entire nation. Or, or it could be limited to that or, or the, the ruling king of Israel. I've installed my son uh, on the throne. This is, this, God says, my son on the throne. But Paul means even more than that. Because a son is equal to the father. One who then would rule in that person's place. Made of the very same stuff. So Paul is using language that is new for him. But, but after what he's seen, how do you describe what, what he has experienced in that vision and conversation with Jesus. Tom Wright says, not for one second did Saul cease to believe in the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was just that, well, what had happened was, how could he put it? 20 years or so later, he would write of glimpsing the glory of God in the face of the Messiah, Jesus. That's in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That was one way of putting it, says Tom Wright. There would be other ways too. Like, how do you talk about Jesus in a, in a way that actually fills the, fills the meaning that Jesus brings? Well, Son of God was one of those ways. It says he was with the disciples. So the disciples are, are learners, pupils, but also practitioners. Like, okay, so if this is the way of Jesus, what do you do? You walk in the way of Jesus. We are apprentices to Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Oh, what is Jesus doing? I want to learn how to do that thing too. And so then I do it. So how did these disciples begin to be comfortable with this betrayer, this wolf among the lambs? Well, they, they watched him worship the lamb. Speak of the lamb, the son of God who takes away the sin of the world. They grew to trust him through fellowship with him. And that's a really interesting and, and I think beautiful point. Um, he, he was all about Jesus. What did he proclaim? Jesus. Why? Because he had seen him seated on the throne. Everything about Saul had this aroma of Jesus. It was obvious to him. He, he, was, he was all about the Lord Jesus. And here's just a question in the middle of this whole thing. Is that the vibe you put off? Oh man, when I hang out with that person, wow, it's all about Jesus. Man, have you hung out with Greg or Alicia or Danny or Julie? They're, they're consumed, actually kind of even maybe addicted to Jesus. They're, they're kind of obsessed. Hmm. Well, personally, I don't trust a man or woman who's all about themselves. I don't at all, because who knows what direction they're going to spin off. But I do trust a man or woman obsessed with Jesus, because with Jesus on the throne of their lives, I can trust the one on the throne, right? Think about that for your own life. Is that, is that what you give off? Or, or, or are you talking about Tom Brady? <laughs> so the disciples were together in the synagogues that, that where the Jews gathered to, to worship and learn. And they're listening to Saul debate. So the disciples are alongside saying, wow, he's, 
He's, he's a champion of Jesus. The passage goes on in Acts 9. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man that made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Yeah, he killed Stephen and, and made the martyrs flee. Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Yeah. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. To say that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the expected king, was to express, as Tom Wright says, the belief that Israel's God had done what he had always said that he would, that Israel's scriptures had been fulfilled in ways never before imagined, and that the temple and Torah themselves were not, after all, the ultimate realities, but instead glorious signposts pointing forward to the new heaven-earth reality that had come to birth in Jesus, this new kingdom, this new creation, God with man, the God-man, heaven with earth, these little colonies of, of heaven on earth. So the temple, which would be the center of worship for the Jews, and the Torah, the, the instruction given by Moses, are just signposts. Jesus has fulfilled the expectations and hopes of Israel, but also he's the hope of nations. Wow. So two, two big issues come out of this proclamation in these synagogues. If Jesus is Lord of the world... Right, so what, so what follows out of that? If he's Lord of the world and, and he's being announced in a Jewish place of learning. Well, one is that Jesus, the crucified man from Nazareth, was the expected messianic conqueror. Put that in your mind. The coming king, Lord, restorer of the nation, is crucified. That's a mental trip hazard for a Jewish person to this day, a trip hazard. The second thing that comes out of this is that he was even calling non-Jews into his family. So let's say I'm one of those disciples that has gathered around Saul and says, well, maybe I can trust him because he's all about Jesus. But surely I can't be asked to accept that he isn't allowing non-Jews into the family, can I? Well, because he's the Lord of Israel, but he's also Lord of the world. So these are big, curious questions that are going to continue throughout the book of Acts. So Saul has become the focus of attention, and everybody's asking about Saul. And he's he'd rather just discuss Jesus. Let me tell you my story, but let me tell you about the Lord of the world. He's, he's willing to tell his story and God's story, and the wonderful overlap. Well, one thing is for sure, and, and I think this, is, this might be the case for you too. I, I wonder, is it the case for you? Um, Jennings says, Saul embodies a great inexplicable reversal. His life is now a question. Okay, you look at Saul and you just have this big question. What is going on? Inexplicable reversal. So think about that. Is that the story of your life? So Jennings goes on. Here's the questions. What happened to Saul? The Saul we thought we knew and understood. And then the question moves to a second layer. What is he saying and what does that mean for us? And then a third layer. 
what should we do with him? This dense question is unbelievably serious because it exposes the direct implication of someone who interrupts the given social order of a world. They now stand in the position of a betrayer. He's a traitor to our side. He's let us down. He's a traitor to the cause. Jennings goes on, he says, Paul may not see this as a betrayal, but as simply taking the hopes of Jewish life and making a tight turn into their long sought after destination. Here we go. Turning his people's story more intensely into God's own life. His listeners, however, see and hear a betrayer. And this is what begins with Saul. Faith in Jesus, allegiance to Jesus, will clearly look like betrayal of one's own people, their story, and destiny. Are, are you prepared for that? That faith or allegiance to Jesus will look like betrayal to your own people, your own story, your own destiny. Jennings, Jennings says, finally, make no mistake, faith in Jesus must make us potential traitors to our peoples because we will turn their story toward Jesus, draw their destiny into his life, and say that he alone is the answer they seek. And this struggle happened with Saul as well. Acts 9.23, it says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Here he is, the betrayer, and, and then many days had passed. How many days do you think that is? When Luke says many days, he's a historian, right? Well, Paul actually fills in the gap here. In Galatians chapter 1, 15 through 18, he tells us that that many days is three years. Well, a lot of time has passed. Galatians 1, 15 through 18 says, but, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, well, that's prophet language, right? And, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So, so here Paul tells us that in this interlude of many days, uh, we have three years that includes Saul with the Jewish community and the, and the new disciples in Damascus, and also a trip to Arabia. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? And this was likely a pilgrimage for the zealous Saul. Most likely he's going to the mountain where the people of Israel got their first definitions of who God was and who they were. The, the great I am. He had revealed himself and, and he had chosen this people on purpose. They were Yahweh's inheritance. So as a zealous man, we would know that, that Paul has a few heroes. One would be uh, Phineas and, and another Elijah. They're zealous. They're called zealous. In 1 Kings 19.9, we find that Elijah, after he had slaughtered a group of priests who had been leading Israel astray and worshiping the deity Baal and breaking covenant with Yahweh, um, he's, he's got the supporters of Baal, Baal worship um, are coming after him now. The queen 
of the region, Jezebel has ordered his murder and he takes off. He goes to the mountain where the covenant was first given. And so he's handing in his commission to Yahweh. And he actually is just giving up. He says, kill me now, I'm done. But God sent angels and, and, and revived him and, and brought him to this cave. It says in 1 Kings 9, 19, verses 9 through 15, I'll read that to you. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after a wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, a little repeat here, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So he's headed back to Damascus. He gives him a list of duties that will include uh, anointing kings that will clean up the remaining pagan worshippers. Um, in Syria, where Damascus is, and also Israel. So Tom Wright says, why did Saul go to Arabia? Well, the parallel with Elijah, the verbal echoes are so close, and the reflection on the zeal so exact that Paul must have intended them indicates that he, like Elijah, made a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai in order to go back to the place where the covenant was ratified. He wanted to go and present himself before the one God to explain that he had been exceedingly zealous, but that his vision, his entire worldview, had been turned on its head. And he received his instructions, just like Elijah, go back and announce the new king. And Saul, like Elijah, was told to go back and get on with the job. Elijah was to anoint a couple of kings and a prophet as well. Saul of Tarsus was to go back and get on with the prophetic task of announcing that Jesus of Nazareth was the true anointed king, the Messiah, the world's rightful sovereign. So Saul is, is saying his, his authority has come directly from the one true God. Uh, many scholars think that he's gone to Mount Sinai. He's gotten, it, gotten the goods from the source. Jesus was unveiled, uh, revealed to him as Lord. And he echoes the words of the prophet like Jeremiah saying he was called from the womb and like Isaiah's servant um, to, to be a light to the nations. Saul's going to the mountain of God to hand in his former commission and receive the new one. This is the one he would carry to the nations and to his death. So back in Acts 9, 23, when many days had passed, these three years, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. 
But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. That's pretty, pretty interesting. The disciples are all about him now. He is not a, he's not a threat. He is one of us. And now we're going to take care of him and, and let him out. So, he, so the gospel can continue to go out. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples there in Jerusalem, but they were all afraid of him. For they didn't believe he was a disciple. Okay, another traitor. Come home. He's what, right? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went out and among them, in and out, at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, right? His focus, his obsession about Jesus was was a clarifying feature for the disciples there. But Saul had had some serious trouble fitting in, pretty much anywhere, right? Uh, this is a homecoming. Well, they think I'm a traitor. He needed someone who would speak up for him. Is he really a traitor? Is he a double agent? Can he be trusted? And so who stepped into the gap and became an advocate? Who was that? A man whose nickname was Barnabas, son of encouragement. And we know this generous man from earlier in the story. He, he sold property and brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was well known and therefore could be a bridge builder. He put his nickname to work and laid his reputation down so that he could side with Paul and promote the good news of the kingship of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Barnabas, yeah. The gospel needs more Barnabases. <laughs> and Saul, it says, spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. The Hellenists, that was his former team of super patriots that started the persecution in the first place. It says, now they are seeking to kill him. And when the brothers, this is the family, right, learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That's where he's from. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It's, it's possible that the church kind of took comfort knowing that this controversial figure who always had the wind swirling around him was off to his Gentile mission, but they must have been amazed that God could do a work in a guy like that. And Barnabas was the bridge builder to make that happen. And so now Saul is in Tarsus for about 10 silent years, working his trade, making leather goods, including tents for traveling merchants, studying, discussing with the scriptures, no doubt arguing with family members and the Jewish people about his new radical beliefs about Jesus and worshiping Jesus with the Jesus people. And, and so many of us can't find really a reference point with Saul. Wow, he's crazy smart. In fact, smarter with each debate. He just gets stronger. The more you debate him, the more he just builds, right? Zealous passion, endless energy, or so it seems. But we, can we be like a Barnabas, an advocate, a bridge builder, an encourager? Maybe you don't have the same passions and drives as, as a Paul, but can you build a bridge for that vehicle that does have that same kind of engine? A, a dozen times a day, you and I have the opportunity to speak up for those who can't represent themselves. Normally, this comes up in water cooler conversations, 
maybe for, for some of you, Snapchat or school chatter, social media wars or inter-office emails. Who's going to stand up for those whose reputations are drowning in gossip? That's a real application point for us, to stand up and be an advocate. More on that in a minute. But, but Luke offers this summary, right, to just close this chapter on Saul and start to talk of the progress so far. Remember Acts 1, 6 through 9? That was when the disciples come together. They asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it's, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And now we have Acts 9.31 saying that, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. <clears throat> Don't you want that for the church today? <laughs> the fear of the Lord, the, the comfort of the Spirit. After all these plots and plans, the murders of martyrs, the family now multiplies. And these are two very clear marks of, of Christian identity, the Lord and the Spirit. Jesus is Lord, allegiance, and the power and the comfort of the Spirit. The Lord and the, the Spirit, it reveals both fear and comfort, reverence and consolation. A life led by the Spirit to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. As mentioned, this may lead some to doubt your loyalties to them as their primary loyalties. Well, maybe they should, uh, because Jesus alone deserves our full allegiance. And let me give you just one last reason why he deserves your full allegiance. Remember, Saul had an advocate in Barnabas. We have an advocate in Jesus. Who will stand up for those whose reputations are drowning in gossip? Well, Jesus does. Who will stand up for you when you sin, when you are clearly in the wrong? Well, Jesus does. 1 John 2 verse 1 says, if anyone does sin, or we don't want to sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. <laughs> yep, when you sin, Jesus stands up to the accusations and stands up for you. So what is Jesus' posture toward you when you're in the midst of sin that darkens your soul? Let me read a little bit from this book, Gentle and Lowly. <clears throat> The Apostle John says, well, what's Jesus' posture? He stands up and defies all accusers. Satan had the first word, but Christ the last, says Bunyan. Satan must be speechless after a plea of our advocate. Jesus is our advocate, our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin when we sin, not after we get over it. In that sense, his advocacy is itself our conquering of that sin. So, of course, we're supposed to forsake our sin. Of course, we are supposed to, to grow in Christ-likeness. We're, we're called to mature to deeper levels of personal holiness. But there are these moments when 
His heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all of our messiness. When we sin, you know this, we try to cover for ourselves, we advocate for ourselves. When we fall short, we make excuses, don't we? We speak if only in our hearts, in our defense, we advocate for ourselves. What if we never needed to advocate for ourselves because another has undertaken to do so? What if that advocate knew exhaustively just how fallen we are, yet at the same time was able to make a better defense for us than we ever could? No blame shifting or excuses, the way our self-advocacies tend to operate, but perfectly just, point to his all-sufficient sacrifice and the sufferings on the cross in our place. Well, we would be free, free of the need to defend ourselves, to bolster our sense of self-worth through self-contribution, to quietly parade before others our virtues in a painful subconscious awareness of our inferiorities and weaknesses. We can leave our case to be made by Christ, the only righteous one. I have a copy of this book for you at church, so um, come and get it. This is a call to be advocates for others who are feeling the weight of their allegiance to Jesus, the persecuted, and, and the, the call to worship the Spirit, worship Jesus in spirit and in truth, in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of knowing that, that we have an advocate before the Father. How glorious is this salvation that we're in? No wonder we want to speak of it. No wonder we speak up for others because we have that one Jesus who speaks on our behalf.